Yeah, that last that last joke that you made about Albanians is kind of fucked up. I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah, I hope I hope we weren't live for that one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, now that this is definitely the first thing anybody's hearing me say, uh, I am now live with Ryan Lake, who is, for anybody who's uh, listening to this who's not familiar with him, he's a philosophy professor at Georgia State University Perimeter College, and uh, he uh, does a, uh, periodically does a philosophy-themed cartoon called Chaos Pet, which these days appears at the Daily News uh, website, and uh, probably the most important thing about him is that he drew the uh, David Hume hushing Ben Shapiro image on the cover of my first book. My finest work, yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, I am. Uh, I'm really hoping that that moment from the the Joe Rogan appearance of uh, me saying that if Ben Shapiro ever wanted to come on my show to argue with me, I'd I'd, I'd be happy to do it. And uh, <laughs> and Joe said, "Oh, I'll, I'll bet he would." You know, like, I'm really hoping there's something to be done with that to, uh, <laughs> to push that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that would be great. That would be great. Yeah, you, if, if that ever happens somehow, you've got to make sure to have that book prominently displayed like, right, <laughs> right by your head. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, the meanest, uh, yeah, the meanest thing ever, anybody, uh, anybody ever said uh, with reference to that was when I was on um, when I was on Dave Smith's show part of the problem for that mm-hmm. first debate with Jane Epstein uh, Dave uh, showed the uh, the book on screen and said that the uh, the, the picture of Shapiro was uh, was drawn to scale <laughs> yeah that's that's about right yeah <laughs> I did. I did feel kind of later that maybe I made Shapiro a little bit too big in relation to David Hume, but <laughs> uh, fair enough. So, uh, if anybody wants to get in the queue, we'll start taking calls in just a minute. Um, but uh, what's uh, so? So, what are you? Uh, you know what are you covering right now? Uh, let's let's do a minute of philosophy. What are you uh, what are you covering right now in your classes? Oh um, well, uh, so right now uh, my I have well, I'm doing a lot of teaching online, uh, but my face to face classes right now are my critical thinking classes, um, and we just spent a good bit um, talking about. It was actually it led to, to some interesting discussions today. Uh, we just spent a good bit talking about how to. Uh, like evaluate and use appeals to authority and appeals to expert opinion and Mm -hmm. ways you should do that and ways you should not do that. And uh, um, yeah, so I I couldn't help myself. So I found a couple of clips that still existed. Um, I guess most of these have been removed, but of uh, Robert Malone on Joe Rogan's show Um, as an, as an example of a kind of bad appeal to expertise, Uh someone who is, actually legitimately an expert 
but um, yeah, right, is out of sync with the overwhelming consensus, and in that case, clearly has some kind of strange conspiracy biases that um, that skew his expertise. Yeah, right. Uh, which is, you know, I mean, which is the thing. I mean, we were talking about this after I was on that. Like in some sense, I'm actually very happy that, you know, sort of glancingly for a minute, but like really, um, but that like for the most part that, that we didn't get into any of that stuff since, mm-hmm. um, I mean, for one thing, uh, I, um, I'm so hilariously far from being an expert about anything that has anything to do with COVID that like, sure. uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, same. I, 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 you know, I, I pretty much try to keep tabs on, on whether, uh, you know, public health authorities think I should be wearing my mask when I'm in the grocery store, but that's about it. Right. Uh, but, um, <laughs> you know, but the way to do this, and it would have been very tricky too. And I mean, I'm, I'm actually not sure exactly how you do this in, in that kind of conversational format, especially is, mm-hmm to have a meta discussion about how it is that you should go about figuring out, uh, you know, which of the people who actually know what they're talking about, you should trust. Yeah. I think that's right. That's the way to do it. Yeah. You don't want to try and get in the weeds of every, <laughs> um, every argument that the conspiracy theorists have come up with, because they've always got dozens. And if you knock one down, they're like, oh, okay, well that's fine. I've got 50 other things I'll bring up. <laughs> and, and, it's it's an endless and kind of futile discussion. Um, I got really well acquainted with that years ago when my brother was um, was very into nine eleven conspiracy theories. <laughs> I really I really did try to get into the weeds on that one, and it was kind of an endless task because the whole community of conspiracy theorists was always come up with with new weird <laughs> things like oh well. You know why? Why was the wind blowing in this direction around Building Seven? Uh, can you explain that? I, I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair. I, I have. There is somebody who I might have told the story here before, but uh, I hope I didn't name them that. I won't name them now because there's somebody who's named people. He had somebody who's named people now, and I, and I think he's gotten over it. Uh, but there, there's somebody who who I know who a long time ago was was into the 9/11 truther stuff, and mm-hmm. um, there's a point where he told me later that uh, he was like out in his garage and he was like trying to like construct some like scale model to you know figure out exactly <laughs> how like the plane would have hit the building or something and. Uh, uh, at at his son, who was like twelve or something, came out and was like, "Dad, you could barely help me with my algebra homework. How do you think you're going to be able to do this?" <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Are you suddenly going to be an expert in structural engineering now? <laughs> right, exactly. And I mean, like, yeah, with most of that truther stuff, you just say, "Well, look, most engineers seem to think the buildings uh, fall down if 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 uh, if uh, seven forty seven hit them." Um, that's good enough for me. I'm not going to become an architect or engineer and <laughs> figure it out for myself. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and this is, yeah. Uh, and, and it is, I mean, I think there are some tricky issues here about what kinds of issues and in what kinds of ways, you know, deferring to, uh, to, to expert consensus is, mm. 
is merited and how you're supposed to figure that out as a non-expert. But I also think like, again, that, that has to be what the issue is about because I just, you know, I I just don't believe that like anybody who says they're going to do their own research is literally going to do their own scientific research, you know, like that. Yeah. That's, that's not right. happening. No, it's it's not happening. That's right. Um, yeah, and absolutely, it, it shouldn't be treated as a simple issue, and it sometimes is. Sometimes it's just like, well, whatever the experts say on any kind of topic, right. that should just be your default view. One of my students brought up the, the good example, um, which I liked, was like, you know, well, what about the uh, the uh, expert consensus at the time about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? <laughs> and it's like, well, okay, yeah, exactly, like... Um, sometimes, you know, when there's very clear, motivated reasoning, you should be a little bit suspicious of, of what a community of experts might be saying. Um, yeah, no, it, exactly. it, does, it does get very complicated to sort those things sure. out. And, and that's the kind of discussion you want to have is, is, is sorting that, that out. Um, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Um, and you know, there, I mean, there is, I think I've, I don't remember if I ever talked about this on air before, but I've. Uh, I know I've mentioned this to you. There's this series of um, YouTube lectures uh, that I really like. Uh, it's at, uh, from Gresham College in, uh, in England. Uh, there's a – I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who does it. But the, the first one and in some ways the most interesting uh, – Alec Ryrie is the professor. It's uh, – uh, so these public lectures by this historian and the, and the first one in the series, which in some ways I found the most interesting, was called uh, How to Be an Atheist in Medieval Europe. And um, and he's he's going through these like, um, you know, heresy trials that would just be from, you know, like these medieval court records mm-hmm. Uh that would generally speaking, right, the, the kinds of people who like anybody who said anything you know, like they actually didn't believe there was a God or like came anywhere like near that, uh, in, uh, in medieval Europe was generally like just some guy, right? I mean, like it was sort of the, uh, the, you know, he sort of says like the equivalent of like somebody now who, you know, might be like sitting at a bar, you know, just talking about something. It's like, yeah, I don't know. That all sounds like bullshit to me. You know, that's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and, and, and it is, it is a little bit interesting just for thinking about like, standards of rationality because like anybody at the time who was an educated person who spent their life thinking about this stuff would have told them that they're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's a great example. (laughs) That's a tricky one. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you want, you want to, so you have to think about a lot of things like, is this the kind of topic where there can be an expert opinion? (laughs) Uh, So, um, you know, just given the state of human understanding of right, the universe right. <laughs> at that time, um, there just weren't expert opinions on the existence of God. But that's a hard thing to sort out, especially if you're living at that time. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. I, uh, which you know, reminds me of the uh, the first time I ever listened to. Uh, um, I, I guess you know people. Um, you know, people who are, uh, people who are listening, who have, you know, like have a hard time remembering a time before like streaming services and stuff might not be familiar, but there's on, uh, AM radio and, you know, for all I know, it still exists, but you know, many years ago 
like the AM radio stations that would do like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity during the day uh, uh-huh. at night at night would play something called coast to coast AM. Mm-hmm. And um, the first time I ever listened to that, and this is very, t- you know, this is a, a good example of coast to coast AM programming. Um, they, uh, there was somebody on who was introduced as a Bigfoot expert. And uh-huh. I remember, and I remember <laughs> at the time, things like, wait, 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 it's like, how do you, how do you get to be a Bigfoot yeah. expert? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. So that, that's a, that's an example of the kind of thing where um, trying to appeal to the community of Bigfoot experts to figure out the truth of Bigfoot is probably not the best route. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's take Scott's call. All right, Scott, what's on your mind? Hey, how's it going? Good. Hey. So, it, it, it's interesting you guys brought up the, the 9-11 truthers because I remember being, I think, uh, if you guys know of the, the Loose Change quote-unquote oh, yeah. documentaries. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those, uh-huh. those came out when I was in college. I remember mm-hmm. being with a bunch of friends and being convinced that, you know, the inside job and mm-hmm. Building 7 and all those, all this jet fuel can't melt steel beams, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I get my my question is kind of a general one of of how to either protect yourself or just become aware of like when when people are using various arguments or or it like Ben Shapiro seems like a master of sophistry and he makes very. He makes arguments that convince people that are not convincing arguments. So, yeah. So I just wondered if you guys had any advice in that realm of things. Hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a really big question. Um, so, I mean, as I was talking about, I'm teaching critical thinking classes right now. Yeah. And in a way, that's like the entire semester. Like that's what we're trying to do is um, get them better at that. So, um, and you know, Ben can speak to this because he he wrote a, a good book on this topic. But I mean, it's it's a lot of steps. So it's you know, it's learning, it's learning the uh, learning the structure of arguments, learning to recognize arguments, um, which is you know something we spend a lot of time on. Um, taking a beat, you know, because with people like Shapiro, they throw so much at you so fast, especially mm-hmm. in this case because he speaks like 200 words per minute. Um, so they, they throw so much at you so fast. So you have to take a beat, um, you know, especially when you're first studying this stuff, like going through the process of formalizing arguments so you can actually see the structure of what they're saying, see what the inferences are that they're trying to get you to accept. Um, and then it's just learning a lot about, you know, being able to identify at least some different basic types of arguments and then learning to identify a bunch of the different kinds of tricks and fallacies that the, uh, Shapiro types will use. Um, and then as you, as you practice this, you get better at spotting it on the fly over time. Um, but yeah, I guess the, the simple answer is like, um, Taking a, taking the minute to just try and break down the argument and really see what's going on, so you can carefully evaluate it. Yeah, I, I can add very much to that, actually. So, um, I mean, yeah, I, I, I did 
I did like that was the first book of an argument was um, was in some ways like my attempt at a long answer to that question. Uh, but but I think that the part of what Ryan said that I'd emphasize the most is about slowing down. Like mm-hmm. I think that. Yeah, I mean, I think in Shapiro's case in particular, I think that a lot of what he, you know, what he's like getting a lot of mileage out of is just that he talks very fast and that he sounds super duper sure of himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and so I think I think that like just, um, you know, I I think that just like like slowing down and being like, okay, wait a second. Let's, let's think about what you just said. Like, is, is, is that true? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? You know, mm-hmm. like, like, uh, what's the, this, this thing that you just said, does it actually, does it actually make sense? You know, could we like dwell on it for a minute? Uh, and, and I imagine, I mean, look, if, you know, if the stars ever did align so that I got to do that, uh, I would, it would be challenging, you know, because, um, you know, Nathan Robinson was on the uh, the post game last night. We were talking about this a little bit. Actually, I don't remember how much of this was on air and how much of it was before we started. Uh, we went live, but like it is always in those environments. You know, it's it's always a challenge because you know whether it's like the you know the like friendly chat, you know, and to you know trying to make your case, but in a friendly chat sort of way with, with Joe Rogan or whether it's like, you know, the, the, you know, the Charlie Kirk debate last fall or, or, you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, like I debated Stefan Molyneux once he makes Charlie Kirk look very sane. Uh, (laughs) And like in any of these environments, I mean, like you're going to get, it's always a challenge because you're going to get people making weird claims like way more often than you could realistically like pick one to like argue about, you know? So uh, you have to be like pretty picky about like, you know, okay, what is it that I'm going to let, which of these things am I going to just let go by, you know, and, uh, and, and which of them am I going to pause on and, uh, and, and say something about it. I imagine, I imagine in Shapiro's case, that would be, you know, that would be like the most difficult to, uh, to do that, you know, to do that with him because they'd be coming so fast. Yeah. With Shapiro, you could only substantively engage with like 1% of what he would be saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess the hope would be that, um, that if you did a good, good enough job with that 1%, that, you know, that, <laughs> that it, it might plant some seeds of doubt, you know, in, uh, in the audience about, okay, how's that other 99%? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh. Well, yeah. Th- thank you, guys. I-, I realized as soon as the question was out of my mouth that it's it's as as vague as like we. How do we solve all the world's problems? Oh, yeah, but, uh, it's, I appreciate. It, it. Absolutely, no. It's huge. I mean, it, and it's it's a question I'm always thinking about as I'm trying to, you know, design my and refine my class from semester to semester. So yeah, it's a good one. It's yeah. really important. Yeah, I I, I mean I think. I mean, I guess the only thing I'd add to what we already said is just like, and I mean, it goes to the discussion we're having just before your call, is that even though I do absolutely believe that there has to be some kind of, um, you know, epistemic division of labor, right? I mean, like, you you know, I mean, you know, people who who talk about, you know, doing their own research aren't, aren't actually going to become like independent epidemiologists. <laughs> uh 
so so you definitely do need some kind of intellectual division of labor but at the same time i think especially right now like just given i mean this is stuff i've talked about a million times on here so i'm not going to like recap it but like just given the way that traditional media has collapsed given the way that people end up like sifting themselves into these weird filter bubbles like i think just kind like there used to be i remember in like the 2000s and you know i don't know before that even like uh there were all of these you know like biologists would like agonize about whether they should debate you know creationists because because you know do you like give them legitimacy you know by doing this and and i can i can understand that right i mean like that's a you know i i can understand where they're coming from you know and i but and i think there are a lot of equivalent things where you know people like oh i'm not gonna you know argue with conspiracy theorists or whatever and look I'm probably not going to because like, you know, for all the reasons we were talking about, but like, I kind of think somebody needs to, you know, because just sort of, just sort of telling, um, you know, just sort of counting on people taking your word for it. I think like in the media environment we're in in particular is just not going to be a winning strategy. Like, I think, I think at some point you have to have like, um, you have to have people who are, um, you know, you have to have people who are actually subject matter experts who also have the set of skills that would be involved to like go out and, and, and argue with people, you know, do some of that, you know, because, because just the sort of normal transmission belt of, okay, everybody basically knows what somebody who knows what they're talking about sounds like, and everybody basically knows, you know, what a crazy person sounds like. I, I, I mean, I think a lot of that's just, really badly broken down yeah absolutely especially because some of these people like like if you were really not knowledgeable about any of it when you like listen to robert malone and some of those clips he doesn't sound like a crazy person you have to actually dig in and know that he's like you know he's cherry picking his studies and he's citing studies that were retracted because they use bad data and, and things like that you have to like actually get into it and it really does to to really do those debates or really present it you really like you said you need subject matter experts getting out there and explaining why this person who might on the surface sound kind of reasonable is actually making bad arguments yeah absolutely all right i've got a few callers in the queue so let's go to the next one oh quick quick question what's what's the best way to get your book then because i need to read it now (laughs) (laughs) well i appreciate that uh, so yeah, it's available at all the usual book places, the Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all that. But the place that I would urge people to get it is, uh, Red Emma's. So, uh, Red Emma's like Emma, the name. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm familiar. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, for anybody who's listening, who's not familiar, that's a worker owned uh, bookstore in Baltimore. You can order books from online you can certainly get it there. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right, Antonio. Thank you. Uh, I also have a kind of a general question uh, mm-hmm. about the about the process of you know navigating navigating fields in which you might not have familiarity. So it it seems like you know just trusting the experts is generally you know what a good default. But what a, a, 
I guess my question is, what, what do we do in cases where there is significant disagreement among them? I guess, how do you, how do you evaluate those situations? It, it seems like, you know, in all of those cases, yeah. it gets very tricky very quickly. And, yeah. you know, the, uh, the tendency we have, you know, when in doubt is to try to come up with our own interpretations. And I think like so the last night's show, uh, what happens that in, with that in the form of Jordan Peterson? Mm-hmm. How do we prevent ourselves from being yeah, that's that. That should be everyone's goal is to try to avoid becoming Jordan Peterson. Um, yeah, no, I. So I think uh, so. This is something we were going over in my classes actually just just today and last week. Um, so so one of the things to keep in mind about expert opinion is uh, an appeal to expert opinion is really only useful in those cases where there is a strong expert consensus. Um, if there really is a strong expert consensus based on data and it's a subject where we, you know, we do have uh, a good level of understanding, then appealing to expert opinion can be pretty strong evidence. And in most cases, that's going to be good enough if, unless you're going to take the time to really learn about it yourself. But if it's a subject where the experts haven't really come to a consensus yet, um, then I think as a non-expert, unless you're really going to dive into it deep yourself, um, you should be, you know, you, you can form your views and do so as well as you can, but you should be, I would say, like pretty humble, um, whatever opinion you come to. You should be pretty, in that case, um, you, you know, the de- degree of credence in your beliefs should be a lot lower, and you should be pretty open to the possibility um, that whatever you end up at could be wrong. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, I mean, there's there's a whole area of, of epistemology with this thriving debate about um, epistemic peer disagreement, which is basically uh, what you should do when somebody who is just as good at reasoning as you are and has access to as much evidence as you do comes to a different conclusion. And should you just, you know, become an agnostic about it? Should you, you know, is it legitimate to stick to your guns? And I mean, like, I think that's a really hard view in itself, but yeah, I mean, I I think I definitely co-side everything that Ryan just said. It's uh uh, although I, as I was listening to that, it's like I start thinking about particular examples of things that I've I've uh, expressed strong factual opinions about yeah. in like you know, <laughs> you know recent weeks or whatever. Because I, I I think between uh, the dynamics of being paid to have opinions about things and uh, the, you know it's it's a uh, I, I I think yeah. it's a I I think it's a particularly hard thing to keep in mind, but I think it's, uh, yeah. I, I, I think it's definitely worth keeping in mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's, uh, let's go to the next caller. Um, all right, Chase. So, um, I have a reactionary buddy who's just kind of your, you know, typical, like Steven mm-hmm. Crowder listener and Ben Shapiro listener and, but you know he's he's an old coworker and he's still good for you know going out for a drink and all that. Anywho, he texts me today the question, "What is lynching?" Oh, yeah. All right. So the question I have for you guys, and I patiently explained American history to him. You know, going through the whole thing. At what point does ignorance become something you're morally culpable for, if at all? Ooh. Because that, you know, I mean, we're all ignorant of something, probably many important things, but we're also part of a society in which 
we need to have, you know, some common understanding of like the world and history to navigate it. And not every form of ignorance feels innocent to me. So I know it's a heavy question, but you're both philosophers. I wanted to bounce it off. Yeah. Um, uh, Yeah, go ahead. uh, I feel like I don't quite understand this anecdote yet. Why was he asking that? What was the context? I think what happened was this bill that went through the Senate that made it a hate crime today prompted him to ask me that question. Because he he knows that I'm kind of a history junkie. Uh Uh, Mm -hmm. And he felt comfortable enough to ask it of me. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it just betrayed a startling level of of ignorance. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's really tough. That's that's a really hard question to answer. Um, I don't know. Do you have any initial thoughts there, Ben? Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, intuitively, there are for sure going to be cases where somebody could be morally culpable for ignorance. Uh, like, if, like, if you're doing something that has the potential to hurt people, and you and you just never bothered to look into you know whether you know whether it is or not right you know then like that that seems like a pretty um a pretty clear case like um if i don't know i mean if you're like a you know military commander and you order an airstrike somewhere and and you just and you just you are actually ignorant of, of whether there are a lot of people who are aware it's going to be because you just never bothered to look into it. Right. You know, then that's like an easy case of somebody who would be morally culpable for, um, for ignorance. But on the other hand, it seems like most people under most circumstances, I'd be a little bit resistant to, to saying that. Right. Because I think that, you know, you have to like what makes that easy case easy is that it's just sort of like immediately obvious that you know that if you uh, that the consequences of you're not knowing something might be might be awful. Uh, whereas I think most people in most contexts, um, any connection between their ignorance about a subject and like bad consequences that might come about as a result of their ignorance is at least a lot less clear. Yeah. Another thing. So I'm just kind of thinking through this. I mean, there's a lot of dimensions to this question. And one thing that occurs to me that might make a difference is there might be a difference. I mean, it seems like there's at least a couple of kinds of ignorance. So there's ignorance of the sort where you form a belief um, and you form it based on weak evidence or based on your biases or whatever motivations you have. Um, and I think you can be pretty straightforwardly culpable for that. Um, and then there's, but then there's ignorance where you just like failed to pick up something. Um, like you failed to learn something. You don't have any belief about it. So like your lynching case seems more like that. Um, and that's trickier. Um, so I, I certainly do want to say there are some cases where you can be culpably ignorant in that sense, where you just, where any responsible person would have learned enough or researched enough to figure these things out. Like, um, and you know, there, I would probably agree. Like, you know, anyone living in America has a responsibility to be well acquainted enough with, uh, you know, the history of racism in this country to have learned what lynching is. 
Um, but I, 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 I guess I would want to say probably those kinds of just ignorance due to just having failed to learn something. In a lot of cases, I would be less willing to morally blame someone for it, unless it's something really drastic like that or, or something that was going to have really bad consequences. Um, yeah, I guess. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I guess it's, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess my instinctive response to that story is like, Hey, good for him. Right. He's trying to learn. You know, that, uh, No, that's good. That's good too. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think that's right too. Yeah. I mean, you, the other thing is like, even if, even if he might in some sense believe blame worthy, that doesn't mean it's a good idea to blame him. So, um, no, and I didn't uh, get on a soapbox yeah. with him about it. I, I just, yeah. you know, linked him articles and we went through the history and yeah. he was rightfully, you know, horrified yeah. at the same time. He's that's 30, good. you yeah. know? And, yeah. Yeah. And sure. So, and so, so think, there, there feels yeah. like some sort of weird gap that isn't just a gap in public education. Yeah. No, I think you can say in some sense, maybe he's accountable for, for not having picked it up sooner, but also kudos to him. He's trying to fix that, you know, and as long as he's in the process of trying to fix that, and he's open to, to learning these things. Um, then I wouldn't want to, you know, spend much energy on blaming him. I would just want to say, yeah, good. This it's good. You're correcting this and let's keep going. I'll, I'll keep walking the rest of the way down the road. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess it does though. I mean, you said it's not just a failed public education. It might not be, but I, I think, probably is a little bit of failure public education. Like, uh, I mean, I, I know you can't, you know, look, I know people zone out during their classes. You can't blame, you know, like you can't assume that there wasn't an attempt to teach him this before, but like, um, but I also wonder, it's like, I don't know. I mean, how much time really was spent on this stuff in his like, you know, middle school and high school history classes. If he's just like unfamiliar with that now. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I don't I, know. I, 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 you know, I mean, I'm like, whatever. I mean, this is also, um, you know, I, I have, uh, and I, I've got to say it too. I mean, like, this is this is a pretty haunting example to think of with all of those uh, bills in state legislatures against uh, against you know portraying uh, you know portraying the. Uh, uh, you know, portraying America in a negative light, basically, you know, that's, yeah. uh, which is like not far off from the actual wording of some of the bills. Uh, no, it absolutely is not. Um, yeah, so we we might have a whole generation of people who are ignorant and not at all culpable for it because it was illegal for their teachers to mention any of this stuff. Well, yeah. thanks for taking the question, guys. I appreciate uh, it. Yeah, right, thank you. you. All right. Uh, Masha, are you there? Yes, I'm here. So Hi. since it's uh, International Women's Day, my question is, what is a woman? <laughs> what is a woman? <laughs> uh, I, I, I've got an answer to that. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you want to go first, Ryan. or uh... I, you, you go ahead. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think it depends on the context. Uh, okay. I think that an analogy I find really helpful is – from Sophie Grace Chappelle, who uh, says um, that, uh, you know, who analogizes words like man and woman, you know, these gender words to a uh, parent, that um, there are a couple of different definitions you could use of, of parent. And in most cases, they coincide, so we don't need to worry too much about how to sort them out. So, um, 
you know, there's a there's a clear biological definition of parent, uh, and there's a uh, but there's also like a social or legal one uh, that, um, you know, so by the uh, by the social or legal one, right? If you you know you could be a, a step parent, you can be an adoptive parent, you know, and uh, and in all of these in all of these contexts, we'd have no problem using words like mother and father. For somebody, even though they clearly don't fit the uh, the biological definition, and I think something similar is probably true about gender that there's uh, that um, that there are you know like the sort of you know adult human female or adult human male you know definitions of uh, of man and woman that is clearly one thing that the uh, that you know that's clearly one way of using these words uh, that and one that's appropriate for some contexts you know if you're talking about like you know women's health for example you know that might be a that might be a relevant one just like if you're talking you know but the same way if you're talking about um, let's see if you're talking about like uh, you know the test came back and you're not the father right you know like we know we know what the word father means there uh, but if it's, uh, the, um, the, you know, the report, let's make sure we send the report card to the child's father, right? You know, the, uh, the term means something else there. And, and we would think that somebody who, who didn't want to apply it in context, like the second one to stepfathers or adoptive fathers, because, you know, that doesn't count, you know, would, you know, you know, I, I, I think we wouldn't, uh, you know, we wouldn't think much of that person. I think we'd probably be right. And I think something roughly similar is true here that there's a, there's a sort of package of, um, of things about, uh, how people present themselves, how they think about themselves, how other people think about them, uh, whether you know their participation in certain sorts of uh, gender segregated activities, uh, how they're you know how they're designated you know in in different cultural or legal ways. Can you give me an example of a gender segregated activity rather than a sex segregated activity? Well, I mean, I think part of the problem is that generally activities that are gender slash segregated, sex segregated. I think that's it's contested, right? Which of those it is? Like like is a lot. It? I, I think so. I mean, it's uh, so like an obvious example is bathrooms, right? So uh, is, you know, the bathroom says, you know, women's room or men's room on it, but, um, but whether, you know, but nobody ever really bothered particularly to, to differentiate whether that meant man or woman in the sense of gender identity or whether that meant man or woman in the sense of uh, biological sex at birth uh, until relatively until relatively recently, in most cases, it coincides, and it wasn't really that politicized as an issue. So the sort of contestation didn't come up. Whereas in the last few years, that's been super duper contested. Right there, there are laws that were passed in various states uh, saying uh, that it's, you know, this is uh, that you know that that means you know that means sex, you know, sex rather than uh, than you know than gender. There are there are many people who who vigorously you know disagreed with those laws. So I, I think in a lot of cases, whether something that's sex slash gender segregated, you know, which, which of those, you know, which of those is the thing that it, it, it should be. I mean, we could disagree about what the right answer is for some of these cases, but a lot of that stuff is pretty contested, I think. Mm-hmm. So then you, you also talked about a social or legal definition um, of each. So can you give me an example of like a social or legal definition of woman, right? Like that doesn't rely on biology 
and that also doesn't rely on like sex stereotypes or misogynistic tropes about uh, makeup, hair, presentation, mm-hmm. sexual availability, um, duty to care for others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that the simplest one, uh, which I suspect you're not going to like, but I mean, the simplest one is just uh, is just identification, right? Like how how somebody how somebody would identify themselves, or you know, or how others would would identify them. I mean, that is, you know, whether that's the one that should be most relevant is, you know, obviously going to be hugely controversial. But I mean, that does seem like something that doesn't that doesn't check any of your boxes just now. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, obviously, obviously, that's not also as as like people with like uh, philosophy and potentially history backgrounds. I was hoping for a more logical answer. Well, I mean, I don't know. If, I don't know what's the I don't know what you mean by logical in that case. Right. I mean, like if, if you mean internally consistent, then I mean, what's the what's the what's the internal inconsistency you see there? Uh, that like if anyone that says that they're a woman is a woman, then what is a woman? What does it mean to feel like a woman or to perceive oneself as a woman? Right? Mm-hmm. Like that's completely circular because, right? Like what other category is so porous, so undefined that one can be simultaneously in it and not in it and also gatekeep around it but not be in it? Like those are not... You know what I mean? Those are like fairly unprecedented, like social phenomenon. Yeah, I wonder about that. If that that is the only that is the only case where we'd say that um, that whether somebody thinks of themselves as being that thing is um, is all that's really relevant for their their designation as that thing, right? So I think that like. Um, you know, I think that at least in certain contexts, like being a Christian is probably like that. Of course, there are, you know, theological, you know, definitions of, of which things you have to believe to be a Christian, but those are all going to be... How about being black? Those are gonna, all going to be hotly contested. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, I mean, obviously that one's not going to be any less controversial uh, than uh, uh, than the, this one, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I don't think, I actually think that one's going to be I think that one's actually probably going to be an interesting case for your view because it doesn't really seem like, at least in the sex case, there seems like a relatively straightforward, I mean, there are ambiguous cases and there are things that make it less straightforward, but I mean, it's going to be at least a relatively straightforward distinction. Whereas in the case of race, I mean, what's the biological definition? It doesn't really seem yeah, like exactly. there is one. Yep. So, um, so I think that I think that in the case of uh, in the case of being black or white or anything like that, I mean, I think that the how you think of yourself, how others think of you, you know, I mean, I think unless we're just going to stop using those words, uh, is uh, is probably is probably going to be it. Again, I think that there are probably whether you're designated uh, in some you know bureaucratic context, you know, like where they want to know people's religion you know, whether you're thought of as a Christian, I mean, it's, that's not going to be based on any sort of contested theological definition. That's just going to be based on, you know, what you, how you think of yourself. Mm-hmm. So is that circular? I'm not, I'm not sure it is. I, I think it's, I certainly don't think it's, I certainly don't think it's internally inconsistent. I mean, it might just, it might just seem wrong to you, right? But like if it has no, if it has no borders, right? If it has literally no, then what is the purpose of that container? Right. It, it Then it means everything and nothing. And it also as materialists, right, like if we're leftists, we have to at some point, like admit to being some form of materialist. Yes. 
so that means that there's no sex class, right? There's no, like, there's no uh, common cause to be had among biological females that are women, right? Like, th- there's a lot of implications for that, that uh, leftists, well, Americans who identify as progressive leftists uh, really don't want to grapple with or decided they don't give a shit. Well, maybe. I think that the, I, I would resist uh, the leap from saying that uh, there are, you know, there are going to be biological and non-biological ways of using some of these terms to saying that it can't be true that there are interests that everybody who fits the biological definition might have in um, in common, right? I mean, that there, there might be, you know, like in the parent case, there might be certain rights that you um, that you should have by virtue of being a um, you know, a biological parent, right? You know, that, that might reasonably come with, you know, with certain rights. No, uh, if a whole sex, uh, like a whole class of humans, which comprise mm-hmm. roughly half the planet, mm-hmm. are not allowed to talk about being oppressed on the basis of their reproductive physiology, of their biological reality, like take uh, FGM, for an example, mm-hmm. female genital mutilation, right? Mm-hmm. There have been in the space of very recently huge, huge, hot like screaming messes about that term being transphobic. Right. Yeah. So, so I think, I think I would make a distinction. I think we probably for the sake of analytical clarity, we're going to have to make a distinction between whether or not uh, it does make sense to think of gender identity as one way to, uh, to use these terms or whether there are reasons why it might be morally appropriate to use that term in this way in some context. And like every single thing that anybody anywhere in the world might say on the basis of that, right. That they have a, that, uh, cause if, if the only contention is that there are people who, who make unreasonable claims, like, you know, it's transphobic to use the phrase female genital mutilation, uh, then I can agree with you that is unreasonable, but I, I I would resist the step backwards from saying that that's a that's an unreasonable thing to object to to saying that like therefore we should just never use gender terms to refer to uh, gender identity rather than biological sex or you know it's 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 inappropriate to ever use those terms to mean anything other than to biological sex. I mean I think those aren't the only options. Well, I think another option is to say that trans women are trans women, right? Like, why do we need to make space, like, in an inclusive way, in an embattled community, when things are very much backsliding for us globally? Why is it that usually quite entitled male-bodied people who experienced much of their life as men with, with all of the attendant privileges, right? How, how is it? that now our entire movement is about them, including like dyke marches and, and, you know, all kind of, like the pussy hat thing. Like I, I didn't agree with it. I hate that as a symbol, but the fact that that was transphobic and women were prevented from identifying with that, etc. Like those are hugely problematic things from within our community. So, right. If like, if I, if we can't as leftists organize around around things that are material reality, what the fuck is our community about? Yeah. So I I guess to me, it sounds like those are, I mean, I I think that there's, again, I'd want to make a distinction between saying like 
is it actually true that the only way, you know, you said it's logical earlier, or, you know, the only way that, you know, conforms to material reality to uh, to use these terms is always in every context to use them to mean sex rather than gender identity, which, again, I just don't think is true. I mean, I don't think it's unmaterialist to uh, to, to use the word parent uh, to, you know, in ways other than for referred biological parentage either. But I think we could make a distinction between that and say that, like, every single claim that anybody ever makes on the basis of that is, is correct. That like, therefore, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's transphobic to, uh, to, you know, to use the phrase women's health or it's transphobic to, you know, to, to use the, uh, the pussy hats, uh, as a, uh, as, as a piece of, of, you know, pro- protest symbolism, right? Like, I think that you can, I mean, by very, very rough analogy, I think anti-Semitism is a real and disturbing thing in the world, but there are many, many things I've heard people call anti-Semitic where I think they're just being ridiculous, you know, and it's, it's not actually uh, anti-Semitic. I mean, we can, we can, we all know how to make those distinctions, I think, and we should, and we should make them here. I mean, I think that really the, it sounds like your issue is more uh, this sort of, you know, moral or political issue about how to, um, how to think about, you know, trans people and, and oppression that trans people have faced and whether it's the same or different. Not and, really. I mean, I'm not at all preoccupied by that. I stay in okay. my lane. I organize around the <laughs> the issues that, that I face as a member of my class, including my sex class, which is biological females, right? And for me, a woman, because I'm not from North America, I'm, I was born in the Balkans, came here as a refugee from civil war. So we know what we're talking about. When we say women, we mean adult human females who survived their girlhood. <laughs> like That's what we fucking mean. And if, if you don't share that experience of surviving girlhood, Probably we can't really organize along the same lines. Now, trans rights are human rights. I'm totally going to be on it if there's an issue regarding that. But inclusion in spaces that have been built for generations by women struggling against every form of obstacle, not really. So, I mean, so, you know, build your own, build your own organizations and uh, and support networks and funding drives and whatever else, right? So, how about how about the issue? Um, uh, so, how about things that aren't aren't built by a, a movement, but are just things that already generally exist in uh, in society, like the uh, you know, I mean, it's it's. You know, like the uh, the the bathroom issue that's uh, that was mentioned earlier, for example. What's your stance on that? Uh, I have two. I'm of two minds about that. Like in the West, I think it's obvious that uh, for trans women who who pass and who are there literally to, to just use the bathroom, um, like absolutely that makes sense. Like if you if you're able to go about your your daily life and nobody's going to bat an eyelash, great. Do it that way. Now, I know factually <laughs> that that that's not the only way that, that that kind of inclusion gets used. So I would like to see someone on like the, you know, on the level of uh, any leftist male activist, come and get your boys, come and get your autogynophile like dudes, come and get these, you know, <laughs> like weirdos that, that go in the women's bathrooms uh, because of under like you know self ID laws, they can with full beards and smearing their semen, for example, on the toilet paper roll. 
like this is shit that really happens that gets posted to social media as a as like a, a form of you know engagement with feminists with turfs I just think broadly we want to be very careful about using those kinds of examples to characterize entire movements or characterize groups of people and and also just I didn't to, I to, think that there's two very separate uh, communities well, that, that's what I mean. uh, under I, I, that I, I umbrella. Want, okay, I, I don't even want to draw the conclusion there are entire communities of people based on based on these incidents that you see on social media and also just – or to characterize movements based on the kinds of debates that happen on social media. Did um, you hear it, me do that? I, I absolutely I just, did I, not. I don't know if you're doing that or not, but I'm just suggesting as just as a rule of thumb, like we don't want to – Also, like do you know what that phrase comes from? Yes, I do. So um, maybe don't fucking use that. Jesus okay. Christ. Okay. Like okay. basic leftist things. Like let's not use language okay. that was that was totally invented to literally beat women down. How about that on International Women's Day? And Brian, why don't you answer my question? What is a woman? I I, I basically co-sign with Ben's what Ben said initially with it with uh, the, I think there are different contexts in which uh, women is going the word woman is going to have different meanings and purposes and for the most part these overlap um, but back to my point about social media I just think we want to be careful um, to draw conclusions about what the trans community is like based on particular debates that might get a lot of attention on social media we have to remember that the person I'm not saying those are trans women I specifically said that there are people that no. will take that will make use of those laws that probably in their everyday life in no way are legitimately part of that community. That's my issue with self-ID. That's my issue with that, with that whole, like, anyone who says they're a woman is a woman, right? That also, like, completely um, puts our, like, trans siblings in danger, actually, no, what, what I was trying to speak to was certain debates that you were referring to that get a lot of traction on social media, like whether, you know, whatever, whether female genital mutilation is a transphobic term. Um, and these kinds of debates might get a lot of traction on social media, but we have to remember that it's something like 5 to 10% of people who are active on social media who are driving 95% of the discourse, and it's only a small percentage of society as a whole that's even on social media at all. Um, so we just, so I, I would just also urge caution generally um, in drawing conclusions about what's animated. Okay, so you're like you're going to tone police me and like kind of message police me, but not, not answer no, no, the no, question no, 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 of no, no, what no, is a woman. No way, no, no. I'm in no way policing your tone. I'm, I'm saying uh -huh. to be careful about how we characterize a group based on what's happening on social media. I was, and I did, and I'm, I, and I am. Thanks. Okay. Mm -hmm. So a woman. I, yeah. Okay, um, I think that was uh, I think that was getting to the point of being uh, of being unproductive, uh, yeah. and we uh, and I think that the I think the original question was answered a couple times. By the way, just yeah. for fun, um, the uh, I did look it up just now because I thought I'd vaguely remembered that rule of thumb thing being debunked, and uh, and uh, and at least uh, at least on a quick Google search, the etymology is unclear. Uh, there is a uh, the uh, there is this uh, this claim, of course, uh, that it uh, that it comes uh, it comes from the 
from uh, what what judges would allow uh, you know people to uh, to to beat their wives with, but there do mm-hmm. seem to be there do seem to be much earlier uh, there do seem to be much earlier usages of uh, of that term from like the 1600s uh, to um, uh, so its earliest appearance in print comes from po- from a posthumously published collection of sermons from Scottish preacher James Durham. Uh, many professed Christians are uh, like to foolish rulers who build by glass and by rule of thumb and not by square and rule. Uh, so that doesn't seem to be, have um, have anything to uh, to do with that. But also I'm, I'm pretty, um, you know, my, my, my pretty strong instinct in, in most cases is to uh, – uh, is to be pretty resistant to, to saying that like whatever the etymology of something was hundreds of years ago tells us much of anything one way or the other about what people mean by it now. That's my, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's that's my that's my usual bias, uh, correctly or not. But in any case, um, uh, let's uh, if, you, there's, if unless there's anything else you want to throw in on there, let's take the next caller. Yeah, let's go to the next one. Good afternoon, Ben. Good afternoon, Ryan. Nice to speak with you again, Ben, and a pleasure to speak with you for the first time, Ryan. Hi. Hi. How's it going? It's going well. Um, I'd like to reflect on a little bit of what Masha was saying. I want to begin by saying it was very thought-provoking, and she did a good job raising her points in a very um, you know, prepared um, and um, courageous fashion. So I, I give her a lot of credit for that because it did get me to think quite a bit about um, what she was asking. And what I'll mm-hmm. say about uh, Ben's response, I think you did a good job trying, I think it's important to have that dialectic. First and foremost, I think that such a discussion should not be shut down or run away from. I'm not blaming you two for mm-hmm. moving on to the caller. I'm not, I'm not trying to insinuate that at all. I'm saying generally speaking, this dialectic through a material analysis, which Masha mentioned materialism a lot, it's very crucial because there mm-hmm. are a lot of... Um, uh, there are a lot of right-wingers who very much oppose the, uh, I'm not saying Masha is at all, but who oppose the humanity of trans people. And I think mm-hmm. I saw Ryan Grimm's um, video piece on Rising the Hill um, about the Transgender Law Center, I believe, study about trying to convince, trying to measure and then secondly convince uh, public opinion in the United States about trans issues as human rights issues what areas are successful, what areas are sorely lacking in the uh, public discourse in terms of trans rights, uh, human rights advocacy. And the sports issue was a big one. Uh, furthermore, I think, um, I appreciate that uh, Masha was sharing about her background being from the Balkans. I think it's very mm-hmm. important to consider uh, the experience, as she was saying, of women in the Balkans, especially in the recent uh, genocide in the 1990s that was experienced, for instance, by Bosnian women. Uh, the mass mm-hmm. rapes and mass genocides were one of the most devastating atrocities of the uh, 1990s. And uh, granted, there were many, if I'm not mistaken. It wasn't the Rwandan genocide around that time as well and um, uh, much more. Um, so I think there, that's where I root myself in to begin. And I try to – my so today is International Women's Day. And I posted on my Instagram about the fact that my mom, 43 years ago on this day, was involved in Iran – on the International Women's Day's protest, alongside tens of thousands of women, protesting against the Islamic Republic of Iran after it had just attained power for one month. She protested against the Islamic Republic's um, sexual apartheid mm-hmm. that um, was enforced through hijab 
and also by torture, murder, execution, you know, threats of putting women's heads in cockroach bags, you name it. And with Masha's point, it's very crucial. It's very, this is a good example because transgender uh, rights, trans, the experience of transgender people in Iran is very different because the Islamic Republic of Iran grants people who are transgender the opportunity to undergo surgery um, and, you know, be treated as... Uh, you yeah, know, I mean, my, my, I mean, my understanding is that they they go further than just granting that that right, you know, which is good yeah, they, they uh, to to uh, to something to like actually be like, oh, you know, you're, uh, you know, um, like, you know, you're gay, you're a lesbian. It, it must really just be that you're the, you know, that like you you you're the other gender because that's not possible, you know. So they, it's a it's a weird uh, it's it's a weird combination actually. I, th- I think Iran might be maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think it's probably relatively unique in the world, you know, in uh, in having the combination of being extremely intolerant of homosexuality and uh, and and actually surprisingly tolerant but in a sort of creepy direction uh, of uh of, of trans rights uh well, i think it's long uh-huh. yes go ahead uh, oh sorry sorry were you just going to speak to the point i just made or or uh yes i was i, I was gonna say i think islam as a as a as a dogma as um mm-hmm. as a, a religious doctrine as a political doctrine needs to be analyzed in that because this is khomeini's um implementation of islamic fundamentalism islamic theology in society um and a lot of that has to do with trying to analyze back to the beginnings of islam from prophet muhammad uh vice regent ali and so on and so forth and seeing through the hadiths through the quran how this determination of a woman's place happened and to masha's point the experience of a, a transgender woman and a woman in iran are very different ones um and our transgender man and a man in iran are very different ones now again what i will uh, what I will challenge in response to Masha is as she was talking about building uh, their own organizations, she said like, for instance, transgender women should build their own organizations and it's about surviving girlhood. That I think is a very important matter to address because of course the experience of a girl, of a young woman around the world has much more violence and much more threats to to their economy and their safety and their well-being than a man's does, a young boy's or a young man's does. That's not to say that a young boy does not not more likely to go to war if they're living in a country like Iraq or Afghanistan. But many women are victims of those wars and the mass rapes and the mass killings and so on and so forth. But of course, I think more importantly, surviving personhood, surviving a life in Yemen, in Gaza, in Syria. And that's, again, not to say that a young girl's experience is not, in many cases, worse. Yeah, yeah. But about organizing in a universal sense is where I uh, orient myself and I'd like to know your reflections. Sure. Yeah. Um, and look, I mean, I do, you know, I mean, I think, if, I think by the end of it, my general policy here is that if, if something feels like it's starting to get a contentious and unhelpful way or, um, or, or is sort of going around in a circle or in this case, both, uh, then, you know, eventually, uh, eventually I'm going to pull the plug and move on to the next call. But I, but I do, you know, I do think it's important. Like I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to just shut it down, uh, because I'm, I'm very happy to have the discussion if it's being treated as a discussion, right. You know, that they, um, and, and I, and I think that, I think that a lot of times the sort of concerns that, 
that move people to have positions like um, like Masha's. Uh, I, I think if I think if people are just sort of immediately shutting it down or you know calling people bigots or whatever, that that can um, you know if if to the extent that you know that you want to you want to persuade people to you know to see things the way that you do on this stuff, that's not that's not helpful. But uh, I guess it is. Um, it is interesting. I mean, I think I think what you're raising is this issue about sort of you know building movements and building organizations based on you know universal experiences and based on particular experiences, and that's a that's a much bigger thing, you know, that like impacts lots of things that have nothing to do with this, right? And in most context i guess the dis- one distinction that i would make is what's the point what's the purpose of whatever it is that you're trying to build right like in other words if you have and i don't you know i mean if what you're doing is is you're you're having like a you know a um you know like a sort of people are meeting together to talk about their experiences and, and, and to, uh, and to reflect on those experiences, then I think that's, you know, I mean, that's like a human and sometimes very necessary thing that I I don't want to, I certainly don't want to bash anybody who feels the need for that. Uh, but if what you're doing is you're, is you're building a political movement to try to affect changes in the world, then my instinct on that is is almost always very very universalistic. That I mean, like that the and this is again. So this is something that comes up all the time with regard to uh, to um you know to how to you know I mean the sort of thing that like Adolf Fried will fight with people about you know about race and class and all of that stuff. That you know that I think you know just just on a really basic simple minded kind of level. I mean I think that the the more people you can get on your side to to do you know to do something the more likely you are going to be to uh to succeed in doing it right so in in the context of of political movements uh i'm my my impulse is to be very skeptical about sort of trying to carve them up in really sectional ways i think one thing that i may want to conclude on but when it yeah. comes to, I think you were talking about organizing alongside a cause. Mm-hmm. And I think going back to my mom's experience on this day 43 years ago is the fact that when she described it to me, there were so many men who were still trying to show, who were showing solidarity with the woman protesting against Islamic veil and the sexual apartheid and the totalitarian state that was forming. And many of those men would chain themselves up alongside the woman such that when the Ba'ath siege and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and other authorities of the Islamic Republic of Iran started going in and attacking the protesters, stabbing the woman, those men would put themselves, put their bodies in the line human defense. And I'm not saying that all causes necessitate people, every person, or necessarily even any person, uh, rather every person to put their body on the line in that way, but in the sense that um, that cause shows how important women's rights are as humans' rights. And I know it's Hillary Clinton, who's the destroyer of Libya, who I believe maybe said that phrase. And of course, she's yeah. and Wall Street's biggest crook and all that, uh, one of the biggest crooks. But that phrase has merit. That still, yeah, still a, good, still a good phrase, absolutely. All right. right. And I, 
love to hear your reflections on that. Thank you very much. I'll hang up. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Um, thank you. Let's take um, let's take Tammy. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. I can. Thank you. First time calling on call in. Appreciate you taking my call. Um, I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Been uh, listening to your stuff for a while. I really appreciate the opportunity to weigh in. Um, I uh, yeah, I've been really intrigued by what I've been hearing today. I, I wanted to first maybe ask Ryan to speak mm-hmm. a little bit more about um, this idea that you said earlier that I may have misunderstood you on, but it was about this sort of um, consensus idea or, you know, mm. when to accept expertise um, as, you know, uh, sort of <laughs> sufficiently, um, I guess, consented upon uh, yeah. before we actually can accept that it's um, something we should, you know, listen to or respect or, you know, follow if we don't have the same expertise ourselves or the time to research something in detail. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess the tricky thing about that is that there are so many historical and even contemporary circumstances where, you know, expert consensus is just clearly also wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, I was just thinking about, like I recently read um, Thomas Frank's Listen Liberal um, and, you know, there's all these examples where like it's the very kind of, cult of professional expertise that um, leads to all of these just extremely dangerous and nefarious Mm -hmm. decision-making things on the part of people in power. So I guess, um, yeah, and, you know, Glenn Greenwald talks a lot about how, you know, today experts are also endorsing hugely problematic and sort of propagandistic talking points and and all of this kind of thing. And And I work at a university, I see this sort of thing happening on that mm-hmm. level as well. So I guess I was just wondering how, you know, you would kind of contend with that or, or what, yeah, what, what sort of you would say in response to that issue? Yeah. I mean, so my, my short answer is like things get very messy very quickly. Um, so uh, I, I, I think we always want to be cautious about accepting expert opinion in any context. Um, I think it's better when there's a strong expert consensus um, but there are all there are all kinds of things. So I, I think in the ideal case, when you have a, a really strong expert consensus and it's based on the data and we have good data available, um, then I think that can be that in itself can be good evidence for a claim. But then, having said that, of course, there are all kinds of factors that can confound that. So um, if the experts have a bias, um, if if the issue that the experts are speaking on is caught up in a big political issue, then their political biases can can st- get them to start, you know, recommending or, or, or claiming uh, dangerous things. Um, or if it's a situation where it has huge consequences or it's going to lead to decisions that have good consequences, um, then we do want to be a lot more careful and um, not just rely on the expert consensus, I, I think. Um, so, yeah, um, the, the thing that comes to my mind is I – where I think uh, expert consensus is most useful. I I always think of like Bertrand Russell um, and he had like kind of three principles for how to rationally use expert opinion. Um, So what he says about expert consensus is that when there is a strong expert consensus, um, at the very least that should give anyone who holds an opinion against that consensus, that should be enough to create reasonable doubt. They should no longer be certain in their opinion. And that's a very modest principle, I think. Um, and then in the cases where 
there's not a consensus, then he says um, the layperson, whatever side they fall on, um, should uh, should not hold their opinion as certain. They should have some room for doubt or skepticism. Um, and so I think even if we just took that modest principle, the expert opinion uh, or lack of expert opinion can be enough to 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 make the non-experts humble. Um, I think that's modest, but I think even that would still be pretty transformative in how we uh, how we do a lot of discourse um, uh, if we took those principles seriously. And I think I think those are good principles. I don't know if that quite answers your question. Um, uh, yeah, no, it, it does. It gives me a lot to think about. I, I, I yeah. mean, one of the examples I was thinking about was um, you know the way that historically, like, um, there was even you know so-called scientific consensus on things that we now that you know contemporary science has yeah. has changed right so yeah. um all these ideas about biology whether it came to ideas about sex when you know to speaking mm-hmm. about the gender argument or whether yeah. it came to like excusing violence and violence and oppression against people on the basis yeah. of like innate biological traits all of this sort of stuff was called Absolutely. science with you know a capital yeah. s <laughs> yeah um and of course you know we now have other orthodoxies that have supplanted that that um, yeah, which is why I think it's it's so important to have voices, um, you know, even if they are in a very small minority and even if they're kind of, um, I don't know, ostracized to continue to yeah. ask those questions. I, I think it's, yeah, I think asking the questions is totally fine. Questioning the expert consensus um, is mm. totally fine. Like, um, especially when the, when, you know, when, in, when the context is such that it's going to be used to justify a war or, or, or big social policies that can have huge consequences, then I think our stance should be, yeah, let's raise the questions. Let's have the discussion. Let's have the discourse. Um, and for those really big questions, I think ideally we should go beyond just saying, okay, well, the expert said this, that's good enough for me. Um, it's good to try to the extent possible, gain some measure of competence in the subject yourself, like at least enough competence that you can then sort out which experts are maybe more worth listening to than others, or which experts might be distorting or cherry picking their, the data they're referring to, like the, the Robert Malone types. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's very messy. I I don't think there's an easy answer, but, but I do, yeah, I, I totally agree with your point. I, I, we do need to allow room for these discussions to happen. Like, I don't think um, ostracizing people is the answer. I think bringing on subject experts to explain where the Robert Malone type is going wrong is, is a much more productive and better approach. Yeah. I mean, I think after that Malone episode came out, um, uh, my, my friend Crystal Ball and uh, and uh, her her co-host Sagra Jetty on the show Breaking Points uh, did a whole episode, or I don't know, it might have been it might have been Crystal and Kyle, but it was one of the two shows that she uh, she does. Uh, they did a whole episode uh, where um, where they you know like they they brought on some some medical experts and kind of went through point by point you know uh, yeah. every everything from that Malone you know Rogan thing, which is. I think, um, you know, and, and sort of went through, it's like, okay, here's the place where like, you know, there's like a, some germ of truth to what he's saying. This, this claim is just wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's, uh, and I think that's much better. And if you want to change minds, that's just going to be a much more effective strategy than, than silencing. I mean, the moment you start silencing people like Malone, you play right into that conspiracist thinking like, oh, of course they're silencing him. He's speaking the truth. Right. So, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. And and I think, uh, I, I mean, I guess the one thing, like, like I totally get, um, you know, what what Terry means by you know about past science and mm-hmm. and all that. I mean, that's that's all very well taken, but, um. And I'm I'm definitely not saying that she's doing this. In fact, it, I think it sounds like she's definitely not doing it. But I think that it's, I I think that like one way that people could go wrong with that though is that, um, what they end up concluding, uh, you know, on the basis of that. Um, here I'm going to go ahead and and just speak ill of a former guest. I'm going to throw my friend Thaddeus under the bus, and <laughs> uh, and say like the. Um, what what are the times he was on the the main show on YouTube? Um, like this is something that drove me crazy in that conversation because you know we there was some like COVID stuff, there was some election stuff, and that like there's this sort of slippage that happens from from skepticism about uh, kind of consensus narratives to to just credulousness about uh, about like anything that goes against consensus narratives, like uh, j- like okay yeah um, even. You know, like even real scientific experts and some of those historical examples, it's just ideological nonsense, which should also, you know, like be a possibility. We're very, you know, we should we should dismiss going forward. Right. But like but even like actual scientists trying really hard to figure out what's true have have gotten things horribly, dramatically wrong in the past. That's absolutely true. But then. Like the flip side of that is like okay, but like what's the what's the track record of conspiracy theorists for like how often, you know how often they've gotten things wrong in the past, you know? Since I think this is often, um, you know, like like what's the alternative way of figuring this stuff out that has a better track record? I think is always the the question you you have to ask, right? Because if it's if it's just if it's just like can uh, saying can. Um, trusting that the consensus of people who spent the most time looking into something is wrong, can that lead you astray? Then the answer is definitely yes, right? And that can absolutely lead you astray. But then the question is, like, what's the alternative procedure that's, you know, that has the better track record of not leading you astray? And, you know, and on some subjects, there might be one, right? But I, I at the very least, it has to be case by case, because, like, very often, you know, like, I mean, whatever. I mean, it's it's just just to be like crass and simplistic about the examples, right? Like, um, you know, the uh, the CDC at various points got things really importantly wrong about COVID. But um, if you were listening to the CDC, you you got a lot less things wrong than if you were listening to like Alex Jones. Yeah, I definitely hear you on that. Um, yeah, I really appreciate those thoughts. I think, I guess the last thing I'll just um, say is that all of what you've both said kind of speaks to, uh, I suppose, in my mind, the necessity for, um, you know, actually engaging in debate and discussion and conversation and not shutting people down who you disagree with or who you think are wrong. Because, yeah. yeah, like like one of you said earlier, it's just, I mean, I, I see examples of this all the time where people, um, you know, have decided that they can't be friends with somebody because they have the opposite opinion to them on certain things. And I just think that's, not only is that a crying shame for people's personal lives and friendships, like it's yeah, also a crying, crying shame for like the state of our ability to, you know, coexist with each other on a sort of higher level, you know, as, as social humans yeah. um, and actually yeah. resolve any of these issues. Like they can't be resolved if we all just talk to each other and have all the same opinions as the people we speak to. So, 
No, absolutely. Um, I yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, so I and appreciate. I mean, yeah, yeah, Sorry, go ahead. yeah, absolutely. And in addition to that, it's also a crying shame just for the perspective of trying to get people to come to round to better positions, right? Because yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you've um, like if you shunned all of your friends and relatives who uh, who who voted for Trump uh, and um, and and you you were you know you absolutely refused to have anything to do with them now. Um, then that might scratch some itch that you feel like you did something, you know, but, uh, but also I, I don't, I mean, I've never understood like what the plan was supposed to be for, you know, I don't know, achieving social democracy in America, you know, uh, without like getting any of those 75 million people, you know, on, uh, on board with it, you know, so, and just, mm-hmm. just having, just having them, just contributing to them being in their own little silo where they're never going to hear your perspective on things seems like maybe the worst thing that you could do. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've heard people think like there are people who think that if you, um, you know, if, if you cancel somebody speaking of, you know, referring to your own book there, um, people think that canceling someone is like the best kind of activism that they can do. Like that, that's mm-hmm. a really major. And then I like, isn't that, isn't that just like putting up a wall <laughs> as opposed yeah. to like resolving an issue? Yeah, I also see a lot of people who want to have it both ways on that, that on the one hand, uh, it's this really important tool of oppressed people that um, because it's the, you know, it's it's the only way the, you know, powerless can take down the powerful. And on the other hand, nobody's ever really canceled. What are you talking about? You know, this is just like people, <laughs> people whining about being criticized. It's like, all right, well, you, you do kind of have to pick uh, <laughs> between, uh, between those yeah. two perspectives. Um, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking my call. Yeah, All right. Thank you, thank you so much, Tammy. All right. Well, uh, that was a lot of uh, a lot of ground. Um, yeah. right. um, I was about to say that's a lot of ground covered, but at least we got to everybody. But then I saw there's uh, there's there's one more call in the queue. Oh, uh, do, yeah, do you? I, I can I can do one more if you want. You can do one more. Okay, yeah. let's uh, let's let's do one more quick call and then uh, and then we'll call it a day. All right. Hello. Hey, are you with us? Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, we hear you now. Yep. Hey, hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. I know it's it's late, and I was able to join late because uh, I have a two-year-old. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what a fascinating uh, discussion here, and thank you so much for that. Yeah. I just wanted to ask a small question about uh, – well, maybe it's not a small question, but maybe it can be answered <laughs> quickly mm-hmm. – is that um, in one way, um, one of the ways in which I've been hearing the discourse about the whole Russia-Ukraine thing uh, mm-hmm. um, is is through the lens of political science and international relations. Um, and this kind of speaks to what Tammy was talking about, which is that both political science and international relations find their axioms, right? The things that they base that uh, social science on within a Cold War lens in mm. the 1940s and 50s and funded through the Ford Foundation and through U.S. government. And so the very axioms on which you build 
your science as a positivist science uh, are themselves skewed within a very specific time in the world. And so we are building on slightly faulty grounds, as it were, right? So a lot of these perspectives skew liberal, skew towards having um, a very, very biased perspective on the issues. And so I'm just wondering then about the very possibility of positive science in the age of mass extinction when all forms of certitudes that modernity provided us over the past two centuries are now slightly falling apart, not slightly, violently falling apart. And so what does it mean then to have a scientific perspective that is positivist in this time? Um, Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll tell you my impulse, which is, I mean, first of all, let me just preface by saying like, this is, you know, uh, this is way outside my area of expertise or even very shallow understanding. Um, but my impulse is to be, I, I think this is exactly, you know, kind of to connect to what we were talking about with Tammy and earlier. Um, this is exactly the kind of issue where I'm very skeptical of the notion of relying on expert opinion um, about what's happening here because there is just so much political ideology all over every perspective on why you know, why this invasion is happening and and who's to blame and what are the best courses of action going forward um I, yeah i'm just i'm very skeptical of relying on any expert opinion or thinking we have a clear scientific perspective on this my just base impulses are that war is bad and we should do whatever we can to avoid war or end war as quickly as possible and beyond that i um yeah i yeah that's I, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much where I'm at. I, I mean, this is, um, I mean, yeah, I was actually just talking earlier today to uh, uh, Victor Brazone, uh, who's a uh, political science graduate student in uh, Toronto, who's been on the show before and is probably going to be back on uh, Friday, uh, who uh, who is kind of complaining about some of the international relations stuff because his perception is that. Um, it makes oftentimes there's, there's like, um, he thinks that it makes like strong causal claims that he's skeptical that we, um, that we have enough, uh, basis for. And, and that's something I'm actually not at all sure what to think about. I mean, this is, um, like I just finished doing this class at school for social and cultural change on G.A. Cohen's book, uh, Karl Marx's Theory of History, and in the extra chapters at the end of the second edition, this is what Cohen is struggling with, like, you know, how much of history could you even realistically have a theory of, right? You know, that it's, uh, uh, I mean, that's a really hard question, right? <laughs> but, um, but I think that, you know, I, I guess, I guess my two thoughts about this are one, I mean, just to kind of underline part of what Ryan said, I do think that this is a case where there are some good reasons to be hesitant about, um, you know, like to, you know, not necessarily reject wholesale, but to like treat gingerly yeah. uh, claims based on expertise just because there is, you know, it's, it's just so much, it's just so ideological. Like there's, like there's so, there's so much impulse, you know, to, um, to, uh, ideologically to, you know, to have, um, you know, sort of think within certain parameters. And also, also there's oftentimes for some of the stuff, there's not that much information to really go on, right? Like that's, uh, Mm -hmm. 
you know, I mean, especially when you're doing stuff like essentially like what a lot of this is, is trying to get inside the head of not very many decision makers, you know, and, uh, and figure out what's, what's making them tick, uh, <laughs> you know, which could be difficult even with like your close friends and family members sometimes, you know, yeah. <laughs> never mind, yeah. never mind like Vladimir Putin or, you know, whoever. Right. So uh, I, I guess, uh, I guess the only other thing I would say is that, uh, I mean, this is, nobody will be surprised by this because this is kind of a hobby horse of mine, but like I, I find myself often really frustrated in discussions about stuff like why, you know, why they, the war started in Ukraine by how many people have a hard, hard times, like differentiating between the is questions and the ought questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So there is this slippage that I see a lot from saying like um, making claims of the form I think that I think the Russian government was motivated by X, Y, and Z. I think that's why they did this. Uh, there's a lot of slippage in a, in a couple of different directions between that and saying, well, if you think that, then you must think they're justified in doing this for reasons X, Y, and Z. And a lot of times, like, hold, slow down, right? <laughs> I don't think I said anything about that, right? I just, I just said I think this is why they did it, you know. Like, uh, I, I think that you can say, and you know, so I think I see both. Some people um, have, uh, you know, I, I see, I see this happen in a couple of directions. Uh, one of them is that I think there are some people on the left. I think they're relatively marginal, thank goodness, but, uh, but there are, but they do exist. Right. Who will just sort of go from um, such and such or the, you know, security concerns that might be motivating the Russian government to do this to therefore what they're doing is fine, which is insane. Uh, like, I mean, I, and obviously if you're, you know, if you're anti-imperialism, you should, you know, you should be, um, you know, you should be just as gets opposed to Russian imperialism as American imperialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but then like in the other direction, I'll see people, if you make the factual claims about why you think, you know, this stuff happened or, you know, what you, how you kind of would kind of read the sequence of events leading up to it, people will interpret you as making a claim about justification, which drives me crazy. Yeah. yeah. Then you're an apologist. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, it's, um, so yeah. yeah, which, which reminds me of nothing so much as, you know, my early twenties in the, uh, in, in this sort of period of, of collective madness that we had after nine 11, where anytime anybody said like, I don't actually think it's just that Al Qaeda hates freedom. You know, I think that they, I, I, I think that they are actually motivated by, you know, various specific goals. Um, anytime you said stuff like that, that the, the response was like, oh, so, you know, um, so you think, uh, so you think that like 9-11 was fine, that that was, that was justified? Like, well, no, I, I actually don't think so. I, I think, I think you could say both. I think you could say, Mm-hmm. That there are like rationally explicable things that drive people to uh, to act, and that it's worth knowing what they are in order to to counter them, uh, and to and to think about how to make it less likely in the future. But also, if the question is like, is it morally justified to like murder thousands of random office workers, you know, in order to make your point about this? Then no. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there should be consistent positions, I think. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, it really, it really seems that way. And, and I think it's also, I mean, I think it's also important in this case because um, I think that, like, look, ideally, if I had my way, um, I would, I would like it very much if, um, if, if one day in the future, you know, Vladimir Putin was like, you know, actually like, you know, in the dock for war crimes charges at the Hague, I, uh, uh, and, you know, while we're at it, same thing for George Bush and Donald Rumsfeld and Henry Kissinger and a lot of other people. Yeah, but, let's, yeah let's throw them all on together. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That would, that would by far be my first choice. Yeah. But uh, given the world as it currently exists, where there's there's really no mechanism for making that happen, uh, I, I do think that, like, I mean, I try to think about ways that this could possibly end, and it seems like okay. First option is um, is the Doctor Strange love option. You know, we just like end all life on Earth, and I'd rather not do that. Uh, and seems then. Bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like, you know, I'm pro-world. Uh, uh-huh. So uh, then uh, then the second option is Putin, quote-unquote, wins. But what does that actually mean? I mean, like, that there's no, like, I assume that, like, if they actually, like, take Kiev and, you know, whatever, kill Zelensky and try to install a puppet government, like, I assume that what that would actually mean in practice is that, like, for the next 10 or 20 years, uh, Ukraine would be like Afghanistan or Iraq were the 2000s and 2010s. I mean, that mm-hmm. there's no, that I, I don't, it's really hard to imagine that happening without just like some incredibly prolonged bloodshed and chaos. Um, so given that, right, I mean, like both of those options seem really bad. It seems like the least bad thing that could happen is if there's some sort of negotiated settlement that might be really, um, that might be really unsatisfying, right? Because, because uh, this would be negotiations between people who are actually, you know, have some leverage in this, this situation, uh, and uh, and some of those are horrible people, and and they are going to get something. Uh, but I really recommend anybody, uh, everybody, read. Uh, Nathan Robinson wrote an article about this for Current Affairs called uh, "Can We Have an Intelligent Adult Conversation About Russia," uh, which. As you told me last night, the response to that article showed that the answer is no, we, we can't. <laughs> but, well, certainly not on social media. That's, that's not a place for intelligent adult conversation. Uh, you know, but like, just given, you know, just given that like the only, like by far the least horrible option would be that there is eventually some sort of negotiated settlement uh, and, you know, under which, you know, Russian forces withdrawing and all of that stuff, that it does seem like it would be useful to, to have some idea of what's what's motivated them. So so you could try to figure out what, you know, what some kind of deal that, that everybody might accept, you know, even if it's their fourth choice or whatever, uh, would, uh, you know, would look like. And I think for now, that's probably the best that you can that you can do. I mean, I, I mean, obviously. What I would prefer is if we had a world where there were some kind of in- international institutions that could actually, you know, hold people accountable mm-hmm. uh, when they did things like this. But I mean, right now, that's not, you know, that's not at all the world that we're living in. Yeah. All right. 
Well, hey, thank you for the call. Uh, so, yeah, thank, you. thank you so much. All right. Well, I think we are going to uh, to end it there for uh, for today. Uh, people, uh, people should uh, people should check out um, uh, you know Ryan's uh, Ryan's comics at the Daily News, and uh, uh, and and they should also snag some of his artwork uh, by. Uh, uh, by by buy and give them an argument. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> that's uh, uh, you're welcome, buddy. All right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. This was this was uh, really interesting. Thanks everyone who called in. Um, definitely some uh, provocative discussion. Yeah. No question. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Left his best. Thanks.